I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but it's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle's Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. When Dr. Martin Luther King got killed, Garfield had their first, and I believe their only riot, and it came across our property on 21st and Spruce. I remember asking Mama, why are all these black people running across our lawn? And she told me, and she said, uh, it's a civil rights movement. And I remember asking her, what, what is that? And she said, well, it's black people getting their just dues, is how she said it. And I was like, well, does that include me? <laughs> and she said, yeah, you black. Of all the things that make the Central District unique, nothing stands out quite as much as the neighborhood's history of resistance and community leadership. I mean, when you think about it, All of the episodes of this podcast have been about community leadership and resistance. Whether we're sharing stories about housing or education or art, they're stories about how Central District residents worked together to challenge injustice and take care of each other. It's really important that we acknowledge that this podcast only scratches the surface when it comes to talking about the community leaders and social movements that define the Central District for decades. From the Black Panthers, to the churches, to the neighborhood YMCA, people living in the CD came together to fight for their rights and create programs that built a thriving community. And that shaped this city. For the final episode of the Shelf Life podcast, we'll hear just a few of the many stories about resistance and community leadership in the CD. One of my favorite interviews was one we recorded with Cecil Beatty and his daughter, Phyllis Yasutaki. Well, what they actually did was Black Panther and they would go to lumber yards and get lumber and stuff and uh, fix up people's houses. They did a lot of community stuff. Community stuff. But I, they would also carry their I, rifles and march down 34th. They looked sharp, too. And I went down. Yeah, there was a lumber yard. I think it's still there, uh, right on Martin Luther King Way. As you, as oh, it, yeah, Dunn Lumber. And they go in there to buy some lumber, and, and the owner wouldn't, wouldn't take no money. He was scared. <laughs> he wouldn't take no money. Just get what you need. You need some more two before us, and you give them all the lumber they need. They come out and build build a people's homes, the old folks' homes. And, and they started a free clinic. Carolyn Downs was the clinic they started, and it started on 22nd and Union, then it moved to 34th and was there for a long time. 
And then when they remodeled um, uh, Odessa Brown, they moved in there. So they have Carolyn Downs, Odessa Brown, and and the uh, public health. But yeah, Carolyn Downs. She was a she was one of the Panther Party members. And doctors from the University of Washington volunteered to come work and give people free physicals, check babies, do all that. And then they started the sickle cell testing. Cecil was like two years old. Yeah. And I, you know, it was hard getting information on sickle cell. My son had been diagnosed with it, but nobody was talking about it. People told me he, you know, I wasn't giving him enough red meat and I need to give him extra iron and all of this. But he was not anemic because of the diet. It was a, it's a um, genetic disease. People didn't know about it in our community. And the Panthers, the University of Washington doctors, trained hundreds of people, gave them kits, and had them go door to door hmm. and poke fingers and take blood samples to test them for sickle cell anemia, the trait and the disease. And it really educated the community because people didn't know about it. My name is Michael Masayuki Takawa, and I was born in the Minidoka concentration camp in Idaho, southern Idaho. My first wife, Judy, she's the one that I was with when we saw the Black Panthers marching around in the Arboretum. Bobby White came up and told me that I had to join the party right now. You got to join the party. And I said, hey, Bobby, look here, man, I ain't black. And he said, you ain't white either. Me and Gary Owens, Bobby White, Bobby Harding, we were all the old guys. We were we all graduated from Garfield or Franklin in 1962. And then it was strange how we all independently kind of came together at the age of 24, right after the party started, to join up with these teenagers. Some of us probably didn't have a good appreciation for nonviolent protests or Martin Luther King, although we all do now. But at the time, we thought that the only way to do it was you got to go down and get yourself a piece. And you got to get out there with the party, and you got to patrol the neighborhood that you live in, and you got to follow the police around just to see if they stop somebody. And if they stop somebody, you're supposed to get out of your car and then stand there with your hardware hanging off you, you know, your rifle, shotguns, pistols, whatever. The main point, of course, was to let the police know that we were watching them. For the most part, it meant just being out in the community and being visible, but also communicating with people in the community to let them know what we were about. And nowadays, people say, well, you know, that was a really dumb thing to do, getting out there with the guns and all that shit and talking all that violence, especially all that violent rhetoric. You know, you just scared the hell out of people with, that was really stupid. Well, in retrospect, maybe now it's really stupid, but at the time it was necessary to establish that there was an alternative for people. All those mistakes, like the guns and the rhetoric, I think they were all necessary. Otherwise, it wouldn't have given permission to a lot of people to get involved. In the early days, we didn't get much support from anybody. After a couple of years, a lot of people in the Japanese community, they approached Aaron. And the one family I can mention because everybody knows them is the Kurose family. But there were other Japanese families that came around to party headquarters and they made it known that it was kind of on the sly, you know, kind of, you know, a private thing. But they wanted to donate money and, and help the Black Panther Party, which I always kind of thought was interesting, too, because the Japanese are always considered to be so law-abiding and so non-confrontational and all this stuff. And they weren't being confrontational, but they were definitely supporting probably the most confrontational group in the whole city. Evan 
evidence of the Black Panther's courageous work can be found all over the CD. The Carolyn Downs Clinic that Phyllis and Cecil mentioned is still open. And on 20th and East Spruce, there's a beautiful mural called the People's Wall that marks the Black Panther Party's second headquarters. They moved there from their first office after it was raided by the police. As Mike Tagawa mentioned, part of being a Black Panther was being visible, particularly to the police. This is a tactic that's been used across time. Phyllis, Cecil, and Harriet G. Walden talk about different efforts to challenge police brutality. I meant to tell Daddy to bring the Jet Magazine. There's an article in Jet Magazine about him, about Seattle, because uh, an African-American man was killed by off-duty policemen. They, they, these two African-American men went in to buy some Chinese food in a restaurant. The officers are there with their wives, and they started making racial slurs and comments and rude things about these men. So the man called up his brother and said, you know, it's getting ready to go down. So they went over and confronted the guys about the remarks and then beat the snot out of them, you know, in a fight, fair fight. The brothers won. They left the restaurant, got in their car to drive off. The officers came out and shot him and killed him through the back of the car. Yeah, he was sitting in the back and they got shot in the back of the head back there. So we started a program. At that time, we had foot beat cops. You know, they were in all them patrol cars, downtown, Chinatown, where, and this happened in Chinatown. And the beat cops, they'd walk the streets. Madison, they walked the streets, you know. So we, uh, in Paris, we would march behind them and watch them. See, see what, the, I don't know why they didn't turn around and smack us, but they, they didn't. They put them with a man and a woman. A man and a woman. So they figured yeah. that it would diffuse uh, a lot of things to have a woman with every man as opposed to having this two men. This was in 1963, 61, yeah, anyway. Somewhere in there, in the 60s. So I got to... It was, it was to make a statement because this wasn't the first incident with police. There was, a lot, you know, a, a lot of stuff going on, no cameras or anything like that. So they just said, fine, we'll just walk the beat with you and make sure that, you know, they're witnesses to whatever you do. As long as there's beat cops on the street, there was somebody behind them. My name is uh, Harriet Walden, Harriet G. Walden. I uh, was born in Jacksonville, Florida. 1990, I started Mothers Against Police Harassment. Uh, this is our 27th year. We changed our name in uh, 1996 to Mothers for Police Accountability because the police uh, beat my kids up uh, coming from the Black Community Festival on August 5th, 1990. And the police officer who stopped him said that he was wanted to search the car for guns and drugs, and I guess a tear light was out. Uh, uh, you know, that little thing that they always claim. I was not at home. The event escalated to four children getting arrested. They were all Garfield High School students. And uh, my uh, third son, Tunde Salisbury, he was a, a senior, uh, and he had just finished uh, high school. Uh, he was co-captain of the football team, and it was on his way to Redland, California, to, on a football scholarship. So um, anyway, none of the young people had a criminal record. Nobody had ever been arrested before. I looked around. It was no organization that was helping young people and it was a lot of harassment going on uh, young people were made to get out the car and take the position they were putting guns at children's heads uh, as if everybody was gang members when we first started mothers we were always down to Olympia uh, and probably one of the most important things that we worked on in the beginning 
after starting Mothers was to stop uh, a weed and seed that came from the Department of Justice to weed out certain unwanted people and to seed in new people. And, and, and that's when they stopped using the word juvenile delinquents. If you go back to the 80s, young people who were wayward was called juvenile delinquency. All young people now are referred to as gang members and that that's a different because when a person is a juvenile delinquent then there's a mindset that this person can be saved and you can do something for them. But when it's a gang member then people have a hardened, a hardened view of not really wanting to put in the resources no more than locking them up. Central District residents have been organizing for a long time even as far back as the 1930s. That's right. As early as 1939, African Americans were fighting job discrimination at Boeing. The Urban League, the NAACP, black churches like Mount Zion and First AME, and the Congress of Racial Equality all led efforts to challenge the many forms of institutional racism facing black Seattleites and other residents of color. This next story is from Reverend Dr. Samuel B. McKinney, who passed away this year. He was the pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church and was a leader in the community. He helped establish the city's first black-owned bank, Liberty Bank, because other banks wouldn't loan to African Americans. And he served as one of the founding members of the Seattle Human Rights Commission, which fought for the passage of the city's first Fair Housing Act. Reverend McKinney brought Dr. Martin Luther King to Seattle in 1961. Dr. King's only visit to Seattle was in 61 when he came. We wanted to uh, have a place for him to speak. It was suggested that we try to get First Presbyterian Church, which had a building at that time that seated over 3,000, and we signed up. Thought we had a gentleman's agreement for that. But then as we got closer to the time, the pastor of the church came under a lot of pressure, and so they canceled. I said, Dr. King, we'll come to Seattle. He will speak. He, uh, we don't know yet where it's going to be. I said, but I think I ought to tell you. We're not going to be quiet about it. Then the word got out, and Dr. King called, what's going on? I told him, you stirred up a hornet's nest, and you haven't even come here yet. But his first speaking engagement here was at the University of Washington. The Mount Zion was too small to accommodate him, but we got what is now Eagles Auditorium, after we left, I showed him a barbecue place. It's still there now, home of good barbecue. So they stayed open for us, and we were there until about 4 in the morning. And people were walking in off the street, shaking his hand. He, he told me later that that was the last trip he took by himself, unaccompanied. He knew that he would be assassinated. Well, I asked him, how are you so sure of that? He said, well, it's, if you're on a journey, there's a point of no return. After you go so far, it doesn't make sense to turn around and try to come back. That's what he had, what he had done. Dr. McKinney's daughter, Rhoda, was only a few months old when Dr. King visited Seattle, so she doesn't actually remember meeting him. But she has certainly heard about it more times than she can count. So when he came to town, my parents could not find a babysitter. 
they always had a hard time finding a babysitter because people were nervous about being in our home. They're like, mm, that's not really a safe place. Something happened and somehow they found a babysitter. So when they were done, they went back to the house and I was crying and crying and crying and crying and I wouldn't shut up. My mother was trying to get me quiet and you know, I've heard the story 50 million times, right? It's the one that they tell at dinner. Couldn't get me quiet, couldn't get me quiet. And so Dr. King says, Louise, give me that baby. <laughs> so he takes me from my mom and starts rocking me back and forth, patting me, da -da 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 -da, and I throw up all over. <laughs> yes, I have the distinction of throwing up all over him. And then he went and he read my sister a bedtime story. What a night for Dr. King and the McKinneys. Yeah, and Rhoda wasn't kidding when she said it was hard for her parents to find babysitters because people didn't think that the McKinney home was a safe place to be. Because of the work my father did, there were people who did not necessarily care for him. And so that made things dangerous for us. The Black Panthers have their place. Here in Seattle, I will tell you that they made my childhood miserable. The Black Panthers at the time, they felt that my father's approach, which they considered to be nonviolent, was not necessarily their approach. They would march in front of our house with rifles pointed into our house. And so on Saturday morning when I should have been able to go outside and play and make mud pies, I couldn't do that. So we had to stay at home. There were police cars in our driveway a lot of times. Um, my sister even had to have escorts to, to school. So it made things quite difficult. So no, didn't get to run around. What I do remember, uh, the night that Edwin T. Pratt was killed and he was the head of the Urban League, is that our house was filled with what we called suits. <laughs> you know, you're a little kid and you kind of look around, it's like, okay, something's going on, there are a whole bunch of people here. There was a rule in our house that we did not answer the phone. We got a lot of crank calls, um, people who would say very ugly and hurtful things, or there were very important calls, like the president calling, um, or the vice president calling. So um, the phone was ringing, and there were all these people in the house, and nobody was answering the phone. And I answered it. I said, McKinney residence, this is Rhoda speaking, how may I help you? And the man on the other end said, little girl, your daddy is next. I just screamed. And I don't remember anything after that. When Edwin Pratt was assassinated, he was the executive director of the Urban League in Seattle and he was shot in the doorway of his North Seattle home. No one was ever convicted for his murder. Pratt Park at 20th and Yesler is named in his memory. Rhoda's story about the Panthers was a tough one for us to include, but we decided to share it because history is complicated and social movements are complicated. The country was complicated at that time. It still is, but acknowledging those complexities is how we learn to work together. One community leader who really believed that people should work together across differences was Tyree Scott. 
He passed away in 2003 after decades of organizing and fighting for workers' rights in Seattle. He founded the UCWA, United Construction Workers Association. Michael Fox, who shares this next story, was the lawyer for UCWA. Tyree Scott, he was one of the most influential people in my life. I mean, he was a, he was a genius in terms of organizational tactics, and he taught me a lot. The primary thing was that he knew how to relate to everybody. Uh, he could talk to somebody who'd been trying to get work for years and was frustrated, but at the same time, he could talk to police, he could talk to construction executives, he could talk to politicians and relate to them and understand where they were coming from. And he also understood that certain of these people had needs that they had to have considered and you couldn't just shout in their face all day. I mean, he was a great negotiator. Uh, And I think it was because he respected people. Uh, Even people who were somewhat hostile to him, he respected them and they came over time to respect him and the movement that he was leading. Uh, a very strong uh, organization called the United Construction Workers Association, which was really organized around improving employment opportunities in the skilled trades in the construction industry, primarily union jobs. It was the major movement in the central area from 1968 really up into the 1980s. The tactic that was developed were job shutdowns, and these were right out of the civil rights movement playbook. There was a huge remodeling of the SeaTac airport going on in 1969, and this I remember vividly because I went down to the, uh, the jail uh, to help get people out of jail uh, who were all arrested at SeaTac, and there were more than 100 people arrested. Uh, what happened at SeaTac was a variety of tactics. For example, the most dramatic thing that they did is somehow, uh, I don't know how many workers, but more than 50, got out on the tarmac, uh, linked arms together, and ran up and down the runway. And planes were diverted from Seattle to Portland. Uh, So the airport was, in effect, shut down. Another event that occurred was called a shit-in. And what they did is these construction workers went into the men's room and all sat down in the stalls and just stayed there so that nobody could use any of the stalls. So there were people, you know, kind of frantic about to get on a flight, needing to go to the john, and they were all, the bathrooms were incapacitated. Uh, Several other workers went to the ticket lines, got in the ticket lines, and then got up front and said, well, I'd like to buy a ticket to to go to uh, Dallas and then from Dallas to Mexico City and from Mexico City to Rio de Janeiro and from Rio de Janeiro to Cape Town, South Africa. And, you know, people are writing these things down. And and then they get to the end of this request for this ticket to be prepared and say, well, by the way, how many uh, blacks do you have working on this construction project here? And somebody said, well, I don't know. Well, then forget the whole thing. I don't want to, you know, it's a racist uh, uh, airport. I don't want to fly out of here. You know, in, in the meantime, the lines for people getting tickets is extending out. So, but these type of job actions were taking place all over town. This was the big movement in the Seattle area, was expanding employment opportunities for Uh, African-Americans in the skilled and well-paying construction industry. I love that shit-in story. It is so funny and innovative. 
Actions like this continued for a long time and became a regular part of life in the CD. Michael Fox was full of amazing stories about the civil disobedience that took place all over the city when it was really being built up. Labor rights were a huge issue at the time. I got involved with the Farm Workers Union in September of 1970 when there was a series of wildcat strikes in the Yakima Valley. Within the space of a week, the crews at 15 hop ranches walked off. Now, at the same time, UCWA was doing its work in Seattle and getting a very solid base in the African-American community. And independent of what was going on in the Yakima Valley, there was what's called a boycott house that was out in the university district and uh, had about five full-time boycotters employed by the UFW running picket lines in the Seattle area to boycott grapes at, at various grocery stores. And farm workers would come over and join these picket lines. I think the construction workers, you know, it just occurred to them, this is a great opportunity to have some Hispanic, African-American alliances, and we got, we're going to go down there and join the picket line. So I can remember very vividly the uh, what's now called the grocery outlet or something like that at uh, MLK, what was then Empire Way, and Union Street. There were probably 15 farm workers and at least 15 African-American construction workers with their uh, hard hats on picketing that grocery store, and nobody went into that store. I mean, it was just completely shut down. And, you know, certainly a lot of the Hispanic farm workers, almost invariably Mexican farm workers from Mexico, had hardly had any contact with African Americans before. And this was a tremendous surprise to them that there would be this kind of support. And at the same time, a lot of the African Americans had had no contact at all with uh, Mexicans, certainly not monolingual farm workers. And they began to see, you know, this is the same struggle. So this repeated itself over the winter. There were more picket lines where farm workers came over and African-Americans went there. And Tyree thought it was wonderful and an opportunity to really engage in political education of both African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. All of the, I mean, the folks in the central area really flocked to the support of this organization of people wanting to be construction workers. Uh, the churches were very supportive. Reverend McKinney at Mount Zion was very supportive. One thing that was, I think, really stupid that UCWA did, and Tyree and others acknowledged it later on, is in about 1975, Mount Zion built its present church, and they were building it with primarily white construction workers. And UCWA made the decision to picket the church. It uh, wound up fracturing a very important part of, this, of the community that supported UCWA. It embarrassed Reverend McKinney, and it embarrassed a lot of the folks that were in that church. You know, Tyree later on admitted this was a mistake, and it, it, I mean, I think I can remember him saying something like, I got too big for my britches, and, you know, I screwed up in this decision. We're so privileged to have the opportunity to hear about these incredibly courageous acts of community resistance, but also to learn from the mistakes that were made and to hear people speaking honestly about them. So far, we've heard a little bit about the Black Panther Party, Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement, police accountability, and labor rights. But there are so many more stories. Right? 
Remember when I said we were just scratching the surface? Another organization that comes up in different stories is the Seattle chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality. CORE was a multiracial organization that fought housing discrimination, school segregation, and job discrimination. Ed and Joan Singler helped found the Seattle chapter. In this story, they talk about the pickets they organized outside of grocery stores that wouldn't hire black people. It got to the point where when we first started, people had to actually be recommended for, for membership in CORE. And so there would be a, an orientation meeting, which Ed ran for a while, and request that you must commit to nonviolence to be a member of that organization. Well, as things picked up, it was like meeting every 10 days or something like that. And when something lot, happened. And a lot of walking. We had to hand deliver those flyers to all the houses in the central area. That was something back then. We had the first picket at Safeway in October. Uh, I was pregnant with our first child. Operating out of the NAACP office on Pine, just off of 23rd, so we, to get leaflets down to people, we were cranking them out on their mimeograph machine, and then I would run them down there and, and check on how, ma how many people had showed up for the picket line and, and hand out the flyers. Um, and that was on Friday, Saturday, and I think I delivered Carrie on Monday or Tuesday or something like that. We had the shop in at 13th and Union, that's the one that Dave Lamb thought we should, out of respect for the president who had just had been assassinated, that we should call off the picket for a week. He, Dave Lamb was white. I can tell you the black people in CORE said, you can just forget that. I mean, uh, I don't think anybody thought that John F. Kennedy did a, a great deal to help black people, and they said, we've been on that picket line now since September, and we're going to keep it going the whole Thanksgiving weekend. The FBI was on us just like that, and so the FBI went to Mount Zion. They told the minister, you better check on one of your parishioners here because he's in big trouble. He's hooked up with a bunch of communists. Norm Johnson, he was the first treasurer, treasurer of course. And so Norm got called by Reverend McKinney and said, well, who are you hanging out with? And, you know, told him the FBI had visited him and he might be in danger of, you know, ruining his reputation by getting involved in CORE. Resistance isn't just about being in the streets. It's also about building community. Two organizations that did a lot of that are the Central Area Motivation Program, or CAMP, and the Central Area Youth Association, known as CAYA. Hayward Evans was one of the directors of CAMP. The first community action agency that was a pilot model was funded here in Seattle by Sergeant Shriver, and it was a Central Area Motivation Program, CAMP. CAMP was truly a holistic uh, community action agency, well-rounded from uh, from cradle to grave, they had uh, programs for a uh, daycare facility. Mental health care, dental care, alcoholism, introduction to college, food bank services, legal advocacy. 
everything that you would, you would sort of need to be supported in terms of personal growth. When I were in camp, we expanded it because, again, because of the gentrification and, and, and uh, folks having to move out of the community, that we opened satellite offices in southeast Seattle. We would advocate, we made it clear even in our mission statement, to develop programs and services aimed to improve the quality of life in the black community and services to eliminate poverty with advocacy. One of camp's first programs was Black Arts West. Robert Stevens was able to study abroad in England as a result of participating in that program. We had this uh, group of social workers. It was called the Social Action Theater. And we went throughout the city and the surrounding areas. We were doing skits. And then we would sit down and have a whole discussion around the skits. During that same time, Black Arts West had started its productions in 69. Because as you, as you know, the theater was controlled by a group of white professors at the UW. And that same group, I'm told, started ACT and the Intamon. So they had a kind of control, both from your classroom to the public. And again, Black Arts West, that program uh, was one of Kemp's first official programs under the Model Cities monies. And I went to a rehearsal and got picked up by them. And that's how I got selected by the English Summer Theater to go overseas and study. The same way with the CAYA, there was, I won't say nothing out there for our youths, but our youths had a hard time being a part of the other uh, athletic, community athletic programs. So it sort of started it all mainly in football. Uh, started their own youth programs to, to push the kids. Camp and CAYA, Lifesavers. Celebration is such an important part of fighting for social justice. We're going to end this episode with these memories of Central District celebrations like Mardi Gras and the Black Community Festival. There was a guy, Morgan, I can't think of his first name, but Morgan had a place up on Madison Street. Him and uh, Honeysuckle got together with a few others that all were business owners on the Strip because that used to be the club up there on Madison Street, all the nightclubs and all the jazz players and everybody. Uh, they got together and said, let's have a Mardi Gras. So they started with parades. It was called the Mardi Gras, and every year they had more and more floats and bands playing. It became a really big deal that attracted everybody out of the city of Seattle. The parade would be right down 23rd Avenue. <laughs> My mom always would have me a 23rd Union, amen. You know, you have to figure the CD was now mostly black, and so we had a black community festival. Yeah, that was always the rage, like, just to see all of those people. There was a time when I felt uncomfortable in my skin. That parade made me feel like I was a part of this community, you know? I lived in a black community, and I was proud of it, and I came into myself then, you know? And it was just like where you couldn't see across the street, you know? It was just brown people everywhere. It was packed with people, packed. All the kids you went to school with and their families on the corner with tents and chairs and blankets and, you know, that that will always stay with me. Anything and everything, lots of food. They had rides, you know, uh, it looked like a carnival. It was huge. I don't, I don't think people realize that it was just a major event that we all came out for. One year I was in it, throwing the candy and waving at people that you know. And, and you just knew you were just gonna see everybody there. Loved every minute of it. Just family, it was just comfortable and that's what I miss a lot. Just hanging out, it was just to see your people.
Oh man, that sounds like so much fun. My smile is so big right now hearing people talk about the community festival. And on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode and this podcast. We have learned so much about what the people of the CD have done to make Seattle a better and more equitable place. And we hope you did too. This podcast is only one small part of the Shelf Life Project. If you have stories to share, or if you'd like to be involved, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag ShelfLifePod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Aina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Maya Aina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening.